Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in. Today I'm talking with Danny Oliver. She's a serial entrepreneur, owner of Island to Island Brewery, House of Juice in Brooklyn, Jun Brew, formerly in Brooklyn, New York, relocating to Dallas, Texas. Danny, I am excited to talk with you. Likewise. So real quick before everyone knows that listens, we always get into origin stories, but I want to actually say a little something about going from Brooklyn to Dallas. Tell us a little real quickly, like what sparked that move? And then I'm very interested in regionality and the cultures behind food and beverage. And so Brooklyn, one of my favorite places in the world, and Dallas, Texas, very different. So I'm fascinated at how you're kind of thinking about navigating, translating your brands to a new market. Uh, well, what sparked the move, uh, Jensen, from Brooklyn to, to Texas um, was basically everything that New York City is. Honestly, it, the place was burning me out. It's not hospitable to small businesses. It's not extremely uh, or it's not very craft beer friendly. And what I was trying to bring to light with my brand was just not being received. And I had visited Texas uh, with my brother-in-law when he moved out here. And we found nothing but brewery after brewery after brewery that was doing what we were trying to do. And it just helped me to realize that I wasn't crazy and that location, 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 New York wasn't it for what I was trying to do on top of everything else that was burning me out personally, professionally, and as a parent. I could see that Brooklyn, one of my favorite places to visit in the world. I wonder though, if I was inundated with the intensity of Brooklyn at all times, what that would mean. And it's, it's interesting having done some events with, uh, with Garrett at, uh, at Brooklyn Brewery, they have a thing there, but there's not a lot of other things around that. So it's very, very interesting. They have an international brand, yet Brooklyn's restaurant scene is flourishing and the beer scene less so. And so you saw that playing out as you were trying to navigate that? Yes, very much so. Understood. Like, there's, a, there's a few people who, who have hit home for beer in New York, but they're all transplants. New Yorkers are very much about import, like what's different, what's coming from outside. They're not about supporting local. And I'm not saying that to put New Yorkers down. I'm just saying that New Yorkers care about other things. New York is the place where everyone is coming in, trying to make it. Um, and so it kind of stifles the locals. Oh, fascinating. That's a whole nother podcast we can get into right <laughs> there. And we'll, we'll, we'll table that for now. So let's go back like we always do. Born Queens, New York. And then you spent quite a bit of time in the islands in St. Martin. Really, yes. really interested kind of how that formed your base. But before that, I just want to get into something very, very big. And maybe not before that, I should say this feeds into this. 
I've never done this before. And reading your bio, it's, it hits hard. And I was fascinated by it. I read this line three, four times and was trying to figure out how I could unpack it and understand it and ask questions that maybe pulled little nuggets out. But I'm basically just going to read this verbatim and let you tell us kind of you know, why you put this in and what this really represents to you. So you say, quote, as an Arawak indigenous American Indian, Danny was raised in the colonial spirit of perfection and judged by every single move she made to protect her from the box society set up for melanated women. That's, that's some heavy shit there. That's pretty serious and clearly uh, really, really important. And I think we're going to hit this theme again and again and again, but you are all go all the time unabridged yourself, which I love. Absolutely. So tell us that statement a little bit, how these early years in Queens clearly set a foundation of strength. Uh, it's funny because as I listened to your podcast, the one with um, um, Pi Craftman, he was just taking me back to my very first experience. And that was in Queens at La Detente. And that was a restaurant slash club slash meeting space slash um, event space that my dad was a DJ at. And my time in Queens was spent a lot at La Detente across the highway from uh, LaGuardia Airport. And my experience there was one of community. It was one of hospitality. It was one of perfection. Um, and it was one that also kind of tore my family apart, but made me feel like I was at home at the same time. Um, so yeah, growing up in Queens was shaped by my experiences behind a bar, behind the DJ booth and walking through a bustling, like a bustling kitchen at La Tan. I mean, like crazy kitchen prep work that I haven't even seen um, to this day in my career since, since what they were doing, because they were doing a lot of catering and parties and stuff. All right. So you really, really were immersed in it early, early on. Yes. And, and interesting, you said it kind of was both communal and tore the family apart. I think that's something so many people within the industry understand what it, what a family it is and how dysfunctional it is as well. And, that episode with John was you know, highlighting a lot of that, how he got sucked into it. And it's, so mm -hmm. it's, it's very, you, you very much are pulling in both directions to be able to succeed and thrive within that family and not get completely demolished by it. And you somehow found your, yourself on the feeling more compelled and stronger community side and not feeling like you had to get the hell out of it how then you found your way at 21, which hearing that story, I was like, oh, you must have started bar backing at like 12 years old, you know, like <laughs> with the family. But it was 21 years old that you started bartending at Mangoville Bar and Grill in Jamaica, Queens. Maybe take us through kind of that transition into being there with the family, with your father DJing to then saying, OK, I'm going to get this into this professionally, because I think that's a really important transition clearly in your life. Uh, yeah, well, in, in the spirit of thinking about people who have helped me come to this point, I got to point out Anne from Anne's Kitchen Table in um, 
at Glenside, Pennsylvania, across the street from Arcadia University. Uh, she was my first restaurant job where I was getting paid to be there. And uh, it was run by her and her husband and her stepson. And I think they were my very, very first experience of family in a restaurant being paid to serve. Um, and it starts there before I get to Mangoville because she taught me perfection behind the counter. Like besides what my family had told me about perfection, she supported that, you know, from her husband, Tom, teaching me about the books and cost and how you can't just put any amount of meat you want in a sandwich or in a salad. You got to weigh it out first. Um, they really honed in on why we have to be perfect in a restaurant space, not only to serve the customer consistently, but also from a cost perspective. And so when I moved back to New York City and was at Mangoville, that turned my world upside down because Mangoville was not about cost control, was not about perfection, was not about recipes. It was damn near a shit show, <laughs> not to throw anyone to, under the bus, but um, it was a bar that was owned by a Guyanese gentleman who was entertaining a lot of his friends. And uh, I worked at another bar that was Guyanese run as well. And it was like, it's just a friend's hangout. And so cost control and recipes meant nothing. And so my perfectionism was welcomed in the hiring process, but hated in the working process. Uh, so that's you my the, experience there. I love that. Uh, I always talk about being the annoying kid in the front row saying, why, why, why? So clearly you were just, they said, good, great, go run with that. And then anytime you tried to help hold somebody else accountable, they were having none of it. Yeah. Yeah. Even from just like wiping down the bottles at the end of the night, like they're like, okay, time to go. And I'm like, no, I need to clean up. I don't want fruit flies. In, in the liquor bottles tomorrow, we need to clean up properly. We need to wipe everything down properly. Like there's a process to this all and I'm very married to that process. I know so many people listening right now are just cringing, imagining those moments or working alongside people who just don't have that level of integrity and care for the process and care for the products and then ultimately care for guests, both internal your team and the external, the ones that pay our bills. So much respect for that. It's very easy too. I've seen it happen where people have that level of, of drive for the process that get gobbled up because yeah. it's not the norm. So yeah. clearly, once again, you don't, you don't shy away from being yourself. Did you find any moments where you were deterred and said, maybe this isn't for me because maybe this is the norm that I'm seeing here? at Mangoville versus, you know, when you're in Pennsylvania and seeing that level of perfection? You know, to be honest, what I do is so ingrained in me and my history. I never even thought about it that way. I never thought like, oh, this isn't for me because other people don't see it that way. I was always married to the perfection of my craft. I was always married to doing it right. And I think that if I felt that way, anywhere along my journey, I wouldn't be an owner today. And I think I am an owner today because I never gave up on the principles of hospitality, the principles of cleanliness, and the principles of getting it right, cost structure, recipes. I believe in it. 
and you're living it. I knew that was going to be the answer, but I wanted to hear your version of that answer because I think people need to hear it. I think it is really, really important. And it's easier to say that a lot of people say that it is a whole different thing to live that when most of the pull in this industry pulls you away from that fundamental philosophy approach and that, that practical approach. So I love hearing that. That's a lot. I mean, in 10 minutes, I already know a lot about you and I appreciate the openness. Now let's talk a little bit about your refrigerator and your pantry. <laughs> you, uh, yes, you officially win for the most uh, items listed when we ask, hey, what are food staples in your, in your pantry and your fridge? Love it. You went, I mean, all in <laughs> to like raw cocoa and spirulina and all the things. I loved yeah. it. As a fermentation nerd myself, clearly you're in fermentation in multiple genres in your businesses, but you got craft beer, you got the chun kombucha, saltfish, pickles, kimchi. Uh, I, just, I just need to hear from somebody else who is so, has so much admiration and adoration for fermented foods. Why all the fermented foods? Tell the people. They need to know. Because once upon a time, we did not have refrigerators. And life continued. <laughs> the end. <laughs> Enough uh, <yeah>. said. <laughs> and, and flavor and just flavor awesome technique. And, and oh. life. And I mean, fermentation teaches you life lessons. It teaches you patience. It teaches you how in all your perfection, you're not in control. You know, what you, what nature gives you is what you're going to get. And I love that part of fermentation. Like there are beer nerds out there who are like, no, it has to be done this way. And if it doesn't come out the way anticipated, we're going to dump the whole thing. And I'm just like, nah, man, like if pineapple juice sits in the fridge a little bit too long, it's okay. Cause now it's pineapple wine and we can enjoy that and get buzzed on it. And all that stress that we had, will be taken away by the alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. That's, that's deep. I like it. I think this is very interesting. Couple things when I'm listening to you talk. One is the fact that nature is kind of providing this, this canvas and this interaction. I talk a lot about mm -hmm. collaboration and fermentation because I think they're the same thing. I love craft beer because there's so much collaboration unlike any other industry I've ever yeah. encountered in my life crazy the amount of collaborations out there it's and like the, the rap industry it, you know what that is so funny i was like the only other industry that's like that is music you mm -hmm. have you know kendrick lamar is the biggest because he's the best but also because he got on everybody's track mm -hmm. and was the best on that track so i i'm interested in that but fermentation is such a collaboration yeah. I mean, the fact that these microorganisms are interacting the way they do is on some next level stuff. I think it's fascinating. And I think that is a whole nother podcast that we could do. And I love that. But your fridge also sparked something that was interesting. You have curry mm -hmm. in, from scratch, jerk yes. seasoning from scratch, yes. green seasoning from scratch. It was yes. very clear. You wanted me to know that that shit is from scratch. From scratch. Uh, it was, it was clear, and it got me thinking, you clearly don't like the easy way in anything. And that is perfect segue. We always like to play a little best served on icebreaker game. Just a fun way to go down a rabbit hole, dig into something that 
is of expertise or of passion of our guests. And so I want to go from scratch. First, I just want to know what from scratch means to you, because clearly it's important and clearly it's something that you are navigating everything that you're doing of being very pure and not taking any shortcuts. So talk to us at a high level what from scratch means to you, to your approach. Okay, so from scratch, guilty as charged. Um, Some people might look at me like I'm crazy with that, um, but what it means to me is that first and foremost, it comes from the land. It comes from nature. And nature is so perfect in what it can create for us. It's not consistent. It's going to give us variations. It's going to give us a bouquet. It's going to give us an experience that's going to create memories that are like time capsules for us. And so I don't believe in this like cookie cutter, you know, American food assembly line ideals where it needs to taste the same all the time, because then it's not a memory. It's just consumption for the sake of consumption vis-a-vis pick a fast food line. Um, When it comes from scratch, it's something to be remembered. It's a destination. It's a point in time that you can look back in your life and say, that thing happened when I was consuming, or when I taste this or smell this, I remember when. And you can only get that when something is real, raw, and natural. Aside from my passion behind that, I was sick, I was fat, and I was suicidal. And I found out through uh, dealing with my health and assessing what I was eating that a lot of my issues came from consuming products that were not food preservatives, um, fake things, derivatives, lab-created chemicals. And it all affected my health very, very, very strongly in a way where, you know, pick a point in time in my childhood or teenage years where I was, you know, thinking about picking a knife up and doing something horrible to myself because my brain was just not functioning the way it needed to because it wasn't being fed which is why there's so much kimchi and seaweed in my, in my household, because we need to feed our, our brains and our microbiome. So from scratch is important to me because not only does it mean that it came from the land, it came from the way nature intended, it also has a health aspect to it. It means that I'm caring about my customers, I'm caring about what's going in their bodies, and I care about how they're gonna feel when they're sitting at my bar, and all the way until when they go home. And I have had customers come back telling me that they've had a week without pain just because they drank something that came out of my shop because they took home a 128 ounce bottle of my Jun kombucha and now are coming back and paying this ridiculous price for a liquid in a bottle that they could make at home because it made them feel better, not just better in their body, but better about themselves. And that for me is something that is priceless. Like how many people can say that they put something in their bodies and they felt different and can point out the person that made them feel that way. You know, I'm, I feel as if I'm a healer or a doctor without a title or a piece of paper to back that because people's lives have been changed by what we put in their bodies. And that's a responsibility that I believe all chefs and all bartenders have to their customers. And I just can't sleep at night knowing that I poisoned someone. Like I, how do you, how do you sleep with yourself knowing that you have added to a vice or the negativity or the suicide that someone can commit just because of something that they put in their body. And I have had customers who have stopped by 
my bar on their last day of life just to say goodbye. And I gave them something or sat down with them on the front of the bar. And then I was able to see them the next day and the next day and the next. I mean, that's really, really going from passion to purpose in a very, very meaningful way. I think that's important. A lot of things to, to touch on there. First, so glad that you found a path different than picking up that knife. Clearly, we're all better for it because you're putting a lot of positivity into the world. Second, very interested in how you are managing your clear need and drive for perfection with allowing time and temperature and microorganisms and nature to take their course. Very interested in that because that seemingly is polarizing for you. Whereas, you know, perfection and control can be synonymous. How do you kind of balance that? And maybe is that somewhat of a, of a cathartic act for you to not feel that it needs to be perfect because it's going to be what it is and that's okay. Can I tell you a secret? Please do. Nobody's listening. It's you and me. <laughs> uh, hashtag BTS. Um, the way I manage that isn't as eloquent as you put it. Like listening to you say it, I'm like, oh, wow, that sounds awesome. I wish I could do that. Um, but behind the scenes, uh, when those things are left to their time and their natural process, I'm doing the work to make it possible for it to go out to the public. So like a lot of people are like, oh, you're a home brewer. And I'm like, no, I'm not a home brewer. If I was a home brewer, I'd be able to sleep at night. Um, enters the business side of things. So cost control, purchasing, resource, finding resources, um, managing people, managing the books, managing taxes, managing the government, managing uh, name and authority that you can think of, um, manage a hose blowing out, uh, a pipe bursting, filter not working, dishwasher not working, uh, sitting in traffic trying to get from point A to point B, that's how I manage it. Like if, if my product wasn't something that required time, I'd go insane. And I, well, I don't know if I go insane because House of Juice doesn't require time. That, that's something that has to be done really fast. But while I'm waiting, I'm doing all the other things that make it a business, that make it possible to get to the public. I love this. Usually these games are fun and lighthearted because we talk about, you know, human real stories on either bookend of this. I like that we just went super fucking deep on this <laughs> and like are getting really, really like why we exist in this universe type is coming next. I love it. Absolutely oh, fascinating. Geez. Super interesting. <laughs> and I'm totally going to be like, hit the brakes and say, cool, just tell us about like your approach to a recipe, which I don't think is going to be a simple thing either. <laughs> but you're making your own curry. You're making your own jerk. You're making your own green seasoning. And right away I was like, most people don't know what that means. So talk to us a little bit about those three recipes specifically. So somebody's like, yeah, I want to do that. I want people to go, I could do that because they can and they mm -hmm. should. Yeah. And I know you're also going to go deep. So, so take us there. So, I mean, the curry, the jerk, the green seasoning, those are all family recipes. Those are things that haven't been handed down to us like in the movies where it comes on like an index card and it's passed down through a funeral or something. It's something where you literally sit and watch your mother or your aunt or your grandmother 
cooking and you watch how they're doing it and you watch how they throw things in and you call them up on the phone and you're like, what was that thing that you put in there? How much did you put in? And it's like, I don't know how much, just enough. Like I, I asked my mom how to make bake the other day and she's like, I put in enough. And I'm like, what the hell is enough? I, I want it to taste like Saturday mornings when you're paying Bob Marley and cleaning the house and we're annoyed that you're waking up us, waking us up at six o'clock in the morning. And those are the modes that I go into where I'm trying to create these memories for my children, these smells in the house that is like, wow, that time when mom wasn't paying attention to us, but we knew that she loved us because we sat down at the table and enjoyed this thing that I, I want to recreate for the rest of my life. And so in the curry, I mean, it's simple ingredients. You got your jira, you got your turmeric, you got your onions, your garlic, uh, your scallions, your ginger, you put all that in it. Uh, it's, it's things that you buy very cheaply by itself. And then you put it together yourself and your hand is going into that. And I really believe that the, the yeast and the bacteria on our hands going into our seasonings add to the seasoning of the food. Like nothing will taste the way your mother or your grandmother makes it or the way a chef makes it when they don't have gloves on. There's just something about it that doesn't taste the same. And so it, it's creating memories for our children. It's memories that we're trying to recreate for ourselves, especially, especially when we're feeling down, especially when we're having a bad day, especially when sales are low and you're just like, why am I doing this? And you just, you get in that kitchen and, and that ginger fills the air or that pimento fills the air and your eyes are burning, your nose are burning and you're crying from the onions being chopped and your children are like, why is this? It, it's life. And I don't want to just give that to my children. I want to give that to the rest of the world. And if I can pay my bills with it, I mean, hey, why not? You're winning. I got to tell you, just two days ago, I was talking with my brother, who is uh, also a chef. Uh, sushi is, is his medium. Mm -hmm. And so very much you're touching everything, right? Mm -hmm. And we talked about that. We were joking about our, our mother, who's an amazing cook as well. And another episode that I did where somebody was like, I, she's like, I'm better on paper than my mother. I can't cook as good as my mom, the dishes that she cooked. And my brother was like, you know what it is? The secret ingredient is their hands. And mm -hmm. so it's amazing to hear you say that because I was just like, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's a very yeah. deep moment and uh, clearly echoed here. All right. Tell us just quickly about jerk and green seasoning because I want a couple people Mm -hmm. to cook that dish after hearing this because that would mean the world to me if they hit us up on social and said I just made jerk seasoning and it changed my life oh okay so those things I don't know if I can break it down to the point where someone is making it themselves because it is our claim to fame so we're I just to, want like, to I really want them back. to be driven to try um, themselves they'll never do your this. jerk for sure I will say this that if someone is going to jerk meat that you need to put craft beer in it. Like my family has always put beer in it, but the moment when uh, my partner put our just for you stout in the jerk seasoning for our jerk wing fest, things changed in a way that I can't explain. For him, it was a moment of 
of, I, I, I don't know what the word, when, when you feel like you've arrived, like, I don't know what the word is for that. He had but an when epiphany. You've accomplished, yeah, he had an epiphany, he arrived, he did something right by his ancestors, because in that moment, his jerk seasoning truly became from scratch. Because it wasn't just him taking the herbs and the spices to make the seasoning itself, but in the marinating of the chicken, he was now using his own beer that he had crafted himself, a recipe he had made himself, a, a malt build and a, and a hot build that he had made himself. And now for him, it was truly from scratch. So I would say anyone who wants to jerk food, you got to put craft beer in it. And even better, if you're a home brewer and you put in your own craft beer, it will change your life. And, and jerk chicken, a lot of people think it's like, just a rub or like this dry seasoning. Like we see dry seasoning for jerk in the store and we always laugh. We're always like, oh my God, who came up with this idea? It's, it can't be dry and it's not a rub. And it's not something that you can just put on your meat and cook it. That is not how you jerk meat. It has to be marinated. It has to be seasoned. It has to sit and it has to ferment. So jerk chicken is very dear to my heart or jerk meat is very dear to my heart because it's also fermented meat. It's not just simply something you put on and cook. It's something that has had to sit and it needs time to be just right. No matter whether it's ribs or, or a steak or, or chicken wings or, or half a chicken, it needs time to sit and ferment. And in that process, the chicken is cooking through the seasonings and then we throw it on the grill for that smoke flavor. I'm in. Let's 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 do that. That sounds amazing. I uh, I want to throw a little uh, nugget at you guys to to think about. Uh, bring Koji into the mix. You see some people now messing around with Shio Koji and getting it into the it, onto meats, rubbing it onto pork chops, things like that, because mm -hmm. of the way that it starts to denature and tenderize is super interesting. When I'm hearing you talk, I'm like that. That's such an important thing. I like that you mentioned that that jerk. Jerk is a process, just like kimchi is a process. I yes. tell people all the time, kimchi that you know is one of thousands of types of kimchis, and they're mm -hmm. all family recipes. So to kimchi something, to jerk something, I think is the important takeaway. And, I mean, you and me, I co-sign on putting beer in lots and lots and lots of things. I have never had beer in jerk chicken. I will now. Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. Thank you for that. Let's let's spin very that welcome. right into your philosophy in, in brewing. You're already giving us a little bit. I'm, I'm super fascinated. Clearly, there's going to be a lot of deep thinking going into the way that you're approaching craft beer. Give us a little bit of that. Um, I don't know where to start. Um, At the beginning. <laughs> At the beginning, this was uh, an experiment to get my health on track for my daughter. Um, it started with the non-alcoholic brews and, um, in trying to learn more and more about that, I found myself at a home brew shop. Thank you to John LaPola and Doug Amport in New York city for, uh, their support on my journey. Uh, and John really encouraged me to start brewing beer and showed me all the ingredients. And I think I did one beer at home. One, I'm not a home brewer. I did one brayer at home and I was like, this is ridiculous. We're making this a business because there's no way that we can make this happen at home and it costs too much. Um, so that was like my business mind at play. 
from there, in terms of making beer, uh, it was a very long journey, um, one that was a little bit disheartening. Um, people think, you know, okay, you say you're going to start a brewery and, you know, you snap your fingers and it happens. Unfortunately, it doesn't. Um, brewers work for the government and there's a lot of steps that we have to go through to get government approval in order to do what we do. Uh, so it's not something to take lightly, the journey from a home brewer to a pro brewer. Uh, it, it's not simple at all. Uh, and so two years after we uh, got a space and got set up, we finally got our license. Um, the delays, the reasons for the delays, I wish to not go into now because I'm trying to heal from it. Uh, and we lost a lot of customers because people were excited about what we were doing non-alcoholic wise. They were excited about what we were doing with the juice and they wanted that, that little buzz part of, of beverage uh, enjoyment. Um, so when we got started, you know, here comes the journey of now, what are we going to do? Uh, because I was forced to start a new company with a different name, with a different identity. It didn't really fit into House of Juice and what I needed to do and what the license requirement was. And so it required me to go back to the, the drawing board and really think about what kind of beer we were going to produce. And at first, I really stuck with... Um, the fruit and the seasons aspect of what we were doing at House of Juice. And so we were brewing a lot of fruit beers and my partner would look at traditional styles and see how to put fruit in. And I was focused more on fermentation with fruit and making beer from fruit. Um, and so that got us down a journey where um, people started to take notice. It wasn't anything like what other people were doing. You know, we weren't doing the IPAs. We weren't doing the German ales or the Belgian ales. We weren't doing the traditional European beers. We were doing what our grandparents were doing. We were doing what we were doing within House of Juice and just fermenting it. Uh, and it was weird to a lot of people. They thought we were crazy. Um, but it wasn't until my mom sat down for an interview with our first magazine and she was asked about what she thought about what her daughter was doing. And she said that she felt like I was possessed. And that really hit me hard. Like, why does my mom think I was possessed? And it was because what I was doing in fermentation from my house to the business was what her and my mother-in-law had watched their grandparents do as they were coming up in the islands. They watched them take the produce of the land, juice it by hand, give them some, and then save some, put it up in the cabinet or in the fridge or underneath their bed with a little bit of yeast in it, and it became something else. And if they tasted it, it put them to sleep. And so there was this magic that was happening for them as they watched their grandparents and their parents take produce from their farm, from their garden, and transform it into a liquid, and then still transform it yet into something else that my grandmothers and great-grandmothers would literally leave home for days and weeks to go sell to the men working in the fields elsewhere or on other islands. And what it turns out they were doing was they were selling contraband. They were moonshining and they were home brewing and they were taking their, their booze out and selling it on the Savannah or selling it in um, Santo Domingo or wherever it was they were going to make money for the household. It's unbelievable. So that's, that's my story. <laughs> that's how I, I got mean, to that's, beer. <laughs> that's absolutely great. And I, um, sorry. That's a, that's a serious, no, I mean, this is it. This this whole this whole show is about why and who, yeah. and clearly that is 
absolutely fundamental what you do because I think in the industry we we focus so much on what we do and how we do it, and they're just they're just not as timeless and they're not as as core to being a person as why we get out of bed in the morning and who we're doing this for. And now you're you've gone to your community directly, the people that you're serving, your partner. What's your partner's name? Because I, I really want to hang out and have jerk chicken and drink beer. His name is Kevin. Excellent. And <laughs> your mother and mother-in-law's first names, what are their names? My mother is Christine Brooks and my mother-in-law is Annette David. Okay. We're, yeah. We can all be friends. I love everything <laughs> that you're saying. And, and there's, you know, they were entrepreneurs themselves way yeah. back. So you are, yeah. you are a byproduct of that entrepreneurial spirit and connecting it to the land, to the people. So your story makes absolute sense because it's, it's already happened. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like my mom said, I'm, I'm possessed and I'm just kind of walking in their footsteps. And that's how, how the brand really developed because, you know, a lot of people looked at the name Island to Island, like, Oh, what Island are you from? What, what Island does Island to Island represent? And I was like, it just means that people are not islands onto themselves. And I'm trying to bring people together. Like that was my first idea behind it. I'm just trying to bring people who think they're on an Island alone together but really and truly, it's my family history that we were traveling from island to island selling booze. Amen. That's good. <laughs> that's a, that, sounds like, that sounds like a way to be. I would, I would be very, very interested in that lifestyle. I feel like we're doing a lot of that now. Now, we're call, now it's called entrepreneurs. Then mm-hmm. you were called a bootlegger. So, yeah. I mean, but the mentality is the same. Very, very interested. I, I really love this episode because we've gone all over the place, completely off script. It's perfect because a lot of times I'm, I'm trying to pull at those threads of why and who and getting down to that. And I get a lot of, I never thought about that. Or, you know, I haven't, I didn't think about that until you asked me that question. Or, you know, now that you say that, it makes sense that blah, blah, blah. But there's been none of that because clearly you have thought nothing about nothing else but that and whatever you're doing the fermentation is just the extension of the why and the who so i love that so let's talk a little bit more about some people we've already interweaved quite a few different people and i love that give us a few more people that we can kind of deep dive onto that really have been fundamental to who you are and the path that you're on uh we mentioned kevin's name so we might as well talk about him uh kevin is definitely a fundamental aspect to my life. Um, I've now started two, three businesses with him uh, by my side. Um, and I don't, I don't know. He, he's an amazing person. He, we met um, at my bar that I was working at. Uh, that was Ravel's bar in uh, Ozone Park, South Ozone Park. Shout out to y'all, my, my first home and my last home in Queens. Um, we met at Ravel's bar. He came by to check out my bartending skills and was challenging me to make some amazing shots for him. And because he was impressed by my shots, he invited me to his bar at the Olive Garden in Gateway in Brooklyn to try some of his drinks. And um, then we got married. Uh, (laughs) um, He is a perfectionist as well. Um, He's Arawak as well. And 
he was a trainer at the Olive Garden and a bartender. He took bartending shifts as well. And so he knew the restaurant business in and out the way I did from a cost perspective, from being true to the recipe, true to the menu, true to the process, being able to upsell and being able to take care of your customers in a way that was very human centric and got them to sort of be under his spell, if you will, uh, which was his way of managing people who were maybe a little bit too drunk or a little bit too belligerent or had just the wrong kind of day and came and sat at his bar. He just was really, really good at that. And I admired that so, so much. And so when it got to the point where we had this opportunity to um, create a bar where we not just had our own bar, but we were serving our own products, he jumped at it. And he was a little bit wary at first of why I wanted to make beer and why I wanted to make fruit beer. He thought I was crazy and that was a dumb idea. And then um, as my electrical engineer and brewery technician, he set up the brew house for me and decided to try his hand at it. And he fell in love. He, he fell in love on day one on his first brew and has not stopped ever since. And, and that's coming from him saying that I was crazy and thinking that I could make my own beer. Um, but knowing that we were so tied to the perfection aspect of hospitality and recipe building and cost control, and that this was something that we really wanted to have in our portfolio. So uh, shout out to Kevin for for all he has done and continues to do. And even what he's not able to do physically now in the brewery, but still is always thinking about and now serves as like my, my business advisor um, where he can't be my technician anymore. Navigating a business, navigating a business in hospitality, navigating a business with family, incredibly challenging. Every layer that you add, more challenging. And then I hear you say, also a perfectionist, also Arawak. And right away, I'm like, are there too many cooks in the kitchen? <laughs> like, how are you guys able to, to manage that? I mean, it's challenging all in and of itself. And then every layer is like more of a challenge or more of an opportunity to thrive. Yeah. Dig into that a little bit. So how we are able to manage that is really simple. And then it gets complicated. So the simple part is I don't cook. I don't touch food. Like that is, he cooks. I do liquids. You don't have nothing to say to me about my liquids because that is my thing. That, that's my baby. I don't say nothing to him about his food. That's his baby. But then there are times where like the business part of us come out and he's like, no, this drink has to be done this way. And I'm like, wait, no, you need to change the cost that way or this food item or this recipe would go better with this event that we're hosting. And so that's where our relationship comes in and starts to massage and where most people would get upset at each other and have a falling out. That's where our relationship thrives, where we have to now negotiate our way through the other putting their hand in our pot or me stepping into his kitchen and being like, no, I don't like the way you played at this. You need to fix it. And him saying, okay, give me a shot, get the hell out. And I'm gonna give you some magic. And I come back and, and it's done. And the same thing with, with beers. If it's like either I'm having a problem in some area 
or I'm asking him for a little advice or he really wants to do something, I just know when I need to step back and say, okay, fine, you can have this brew or you'll do the recipe and I'll execute. But when I'm executing, you don't tell me what temperatures I'm doing. You don't tell me how long the mash is. This is my process. So we just, we take turns on who has control of what aspect and then we negotiate, negotiate our way through it. And I really love that because it's, I find it very difficult to work with people who aren't willing to fight to get to a better end product. Like I love Star Trek and in Star Trek, great minds come together with ideas that they've got to shoot each other down on, but keep working through to get to a result that's going to save the universe. And that's the way we interact with each other. Once again, several things to, to glean from this. I really like that you said fight for it. A lot of times in partnerships, it's compromise, which is also important. However, the way that you get there for you clearly means a lot that you're both respecting. I talk about trust and confidence. You have trust and confidence in each other and you have the macro. The why and the who is very, very clear. So you don't get caught up in the bullshit of the, of the minutia of the what and the how as much. At the same time, you're challenging and pushing each other. So I'm really, really interested in that approach. It's hard if you don't have the trust and confidence mm -hmm. because it's really, really easy then to just step on toes, but you, you have that. And I think that's important. That yeah. clarity and that communication, that's, that's it. If more of us were able to navigate the way that you guys clearly are, and I'm sure that doesn't always work. I'm sure there's plenty of times you are stepping on each other's toes, but in the big picture, it's nothing compared to what you're able to accomplish because of that trust, that confidence, the fight that you both have. So I want people to hear that because I think that's important. Understanding, having self-awareness is very, very important in this game called life. And especially if you're fucking crazy enough to be in the hospitality industry in any way, shape or form. <laughs> so yep. I, re I really like hearing that. All right, Kevin, uh, this is amazing. And I wish we could talk about 10, 15, 20 more people because I'm sure every single one of them would have the depth and the thought that you bring to clearly every single part of your life. Let's talk now. This show is all about those unsung hospitality heroes. We are nothing without the people that got us to this point, that keep us here, that drive us every single day. I love this because it's how we contextualize our relationships and how we're interconnected is so so important. So tell us about one, because there's many, one of your unsung hospitality heroes. Can I give a shout out to other few before I mention the unsung? I don't, I won't go into their story. I just want to mention them because- Hell yes, you can. Okay, cool. yes. Thank you. Um, as so many just... as possible. And then I want you to kick yourself for not remembering every single person and I know you will, and you're going to have to give them shout outs uh, when you share this on social media, if you do forget their name and everyone right. hold Danny accountable to that. Help me <laughs> please. Out here. Yes, please do. Um, I want to say thank you to Giselle, Emily, and Joy. Uh, those women have carried me to this point and I did not understand them and I burnt them out uh, in the process of burning myself out. And I will say that that has led me to Eric Jackson out of Richmond, Virginia. Uh, he is my unsung hospitality hero. Um, he, he's teaching me what it means to be a good manager, not for me to be a good manager, but what to look for and understand in, 
in a good manager within the hospitality industry. And he comes to the craft beer world and hospitality world um, through um, the Marriott. So, you know, the most luxurious um, hospitality experiences that you can have in the world. He comes um, from that training and he's, he's very people centric and um, I'm very numbers centric. And so even when Kevin and I have like fights and, and we can't find a, a negotiating factor that leaves both of us happy, we immediately stop and turn to the books and the numbers do the talking for us. So it's all about the numbers. We need evidence. We need the numbers to speak. If I really want to keep a smoothie on, but it's not selling, I can't argue with him. It's gone. Eric is teaching me about what it means to be about people and put people forward, even when they're not necessarily into what you're doing or they're not there to experience what you have to offer. They're there for themselves or for their own curiosity. He's teaching me what it means to know a person's name and remember a person's name, which is why, yes, people do have to hold me accountable for not remembering their names. Um, and that it's not always about the books, that there is this unspoken humanity that we all have within us that needs to come out to make people feel welcomed. And I only know how to do that in an ultra luxe setting. I only know how to do that when people are into what I'm doing. He does that no matter what. If you're coming into his tap room and you don't know what you want and you don't know why you're there, he's going to take you on a journey and he's going to help you find your way into the right craft beer glass that works for you. Where I'm just like, you know, we make fruit beers, right? I'm sorry, I don't have an IPA for you. Bye. I'm leaving. I'm going to the brew house. Like, he is the opposite. And I love his approach to hospitality because it teaches me that I can't be everything. I've been trying for so long to be everything to everyone and do everything and wear so many hats. And in me trying to wear all those hats, I burnt out Joy. I burnt out Giselle. I burnt out Emily because I was trying to do so much and I never truly stepped back to allow them to be, to thrive, to serve, to, to relax within the environment that I had created that they enjoyed being within. And even down to Emily, like she was the perfect marriage between Kevin and I. She had Kevin's wit and my recipe design ideas. And she was an herbalist and, and focused on health as well. And I don't know if I'll ever find another her, but I would push her and I would push her to be more than who her personality was set up to be because I was about the numbers. I was about the perfection. I was about go, 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 go. And she was about creating an experience and hospitality and serving and being more welcoming. And that's what she needed to be. And Eric is teaching me that, that like a good manager for a tap room or even a good server behind the bar needs to be someone who's not focused on the business, on the numbers, but on the person. What a lesson. I think it's something that I reflect on. It's part of why I started this podcast was every time I've succeeded, 
whatever micro successes those are, it's always been because I recognize as a leader, I worked for my team, not the other way around. And every single time it's binary. Every time I've failed, it's because I took people for granted. And it's hard, it's hard to manage allowing them to be the best version of themselves and you bringing that out than expecting them to be the best version of you, which I'm not even capable of being quote unquote, the best version of me. So what the fuck am I thinking, asking them to do it? It's impossible. Right. What a, what a lesson. And it's important because sometimes when you are so go, 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 right. We're, we're called arsonists, that kind of serial entrepreneur. We, we light a lot of fires for other people to put out. That's Mm -hmm. a, that's one of the archetypes and uh, and definitely something that I think both you and I are blessed and afflicted by. And to have somebody that you have trust and confidence and vice versa, like Eric, oh, that's so important. Yeah. You're, you're super lucky. You know you're lucky. And to have that is, is really, really key. Amazing. Unbelievable conversation. You've already left us with so many words to live by, so many things to reflect upon, so many things to drive us as we try to make our way through this crazy thing called hospitality, food and beverage, being of service to others. And you gave us a great quote. I love this. Never accept no from someone who can tell you yes. Who can't tell you yes. Who can't tell you yes yeah i totally messed up your quote i'm glad it's your <laughs> okay. quote not my quote now I, I need to read the quote again and get it in my head uh tell us what that means like something to kind of take out into the world make it a better place why does that drive you so my high school teacher my high school um fine art teacher d winfield taught me that you'll never you should never accept no from someone who cannot tell you yes and what that means is there are a lot of people who will try to shoot you down. They'll tell you no, they'll scare you. They'll come up with all kinds of reasons why you should, shouldn't do something, but they don't actually have the power to tell you, yes, you can do it. They might not have the money to make it happen. They might never even be your customer. So why are you taking advice from them? If they can't tell you, yes, they can't bring your dream to life. So they're not really an advisor. And so I think she put that in me because she saw my drive. She saw what was holding me back from reaching my goal. And like I I said to you in the beginning, like I was very very much so raised in a, a very perfectionist colonial mindset where like you have to do these things because you have to be more than what society says you're set up to be, right? And I was taught that, you know, you gotta be a doctor, a lawyer, a nurse, or a teacher. And even though my parents wanted me to be one of those things, they still kept teaching me this lesson of you need to be more, you need to shoot for the stars. So if I had ever accepted no from someone who couldn't tell me yes, I'd probably be a teacher. I'd I'd probably be a nurse. I'd probably be working for the government. And, And I think the way that I have expressed living that quote the most is by not listening to my parents who taught me all these lessons where they were like, why don't you just get a job, a good government job? And it's like, well, hey, mom, hey, dad, can you give me a government job? No, you can't. So I'm not going to accept the no from you that I can't follow my dreams and my goals of ownership because you can't give me a yes 
toward an alternative, nor can you give me the yes toward my goal. The only thing you can do is be there, be patient, be supportive, but you can't tell me yes, because they did not have the tools to make it possible. And so if someone doesn't have the tools to make your dream or your question possible, then you shouldn't accept their negativity. You shouldn't internalize someone else's negativity for what it is you want to do when they can't help you reach it. We really do spend a lot of time and energy on the judgment of others. And it's, a, it's fascinating. It's so human, so hard to break away from, and such good advice. Danny, thank you. Thank you. Brought a lot of value to me personally, everybody listening, and just hospitality as a whole. This is what it's about, these type of conversations, opening ourselves up to more why and more who and more why and more who because it makes the what and the how so much more gratifying and easier. It makes it easier because you stay focused. You got that North Star and that anchor to keep you grounded. I think it's so important. And I'm, I'm just doing this podcast so I can try to learn from people that are navigating better than I am, I'm sure, and struggling, I'm sure. And I think it's an amazing part of the humanity that is hospitality. We need to keep focused on that. So Danny, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Jensen, for having me. I really do appreciate it. Cheers. Danny, to no surprise, we got deep. She is profound, deep thinker. And so I was really excited to hear who she kind of wanted to nominate as one of her many unsung hospitality heroes. I was very excited that she gave a big shout out to Mr. Eric Jackson. And it is a pleasure, Eric, to have you on the line to talk a little bit and to have you on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. It's going to be fun. So before we get into kind of the relationship with Danny and, and you know, our relationships in the industry as a whole, mm-hmm. we'd like to start with just a little bit of the origin. So tell us where you're from originally. Um, originally, I am from Virginia, uh, Portsmouth, Virginia, uh, but I grew up in Nashville. Um, so that's kind of where I um, went to school. Um, eventually, I went to college in Kentucky. Um, but yeah, I, I consider myself from Nashville just, just because that's where I grew up. I mean, Nashville is quite the scene from music to food. There's, uh, some guys like Yazoo and some budding craft beer yeah, happening. So absolutely. I'm, I'm a fan of, uh, that scene for sure. So maybe give us a little bit. I mean, growing up in Nashville, food specifically, and just the scene, how did that influence you and maybe then parlay that into your first job actually in the industry? Sure. Um, how did that influence me? I mean, there were restaurants um, all over the place. And, you know, we used to go out all the time as kids, me and my sister with my family after church Sunday kind of meals, you know. Um, we go out to eat. And I think that really, I, I really beca- became like in love with, like the plates, the plating of food, um, and just how f- food was put together and how it tasted. Um, my mom, my mom cooked. Um, she was, I thought she was like the best cook. She might not think that about herself, but I think she's like one of the best cooks. Um, and I learned a lot from her. Um, and I think that she really inspired me um, to be what I am now. I'm not a chef or anything like that. I think I'm, I'm just 
more of a self-proclaimed chef, a home chef. Um, but it kind of really played a role in my experience in hospitality, which we'll get into later. Yeah, I love that. And and moms are always the best cooks. You make sure and you let them know that. Uh, we actually talked about Danny and I've talked about it before. There's something in their hands, the secret ingredient. This is why us chefs can't actually cook better than our mothers is the secret ingredient is their hands. And you're just never going to recreate that. You know, I think it's, <laughs> yeah. I think it's really great. All right. So then getting into hospitality, where did that really start for you kind of on the semi-pro <laughs> professional level? When did you, sure. did you so start working? It, it started for me uh, during college. I went to a college called Berea College in Kentucky. And part of the program was that the students were required to work, I believe, 20 hours a week um, as part of the work program. And I and it was a, it was basically a lottery of where you worked. Um, and my destination of work ended up being um, in food service. It was a place that no one wanted to work. Anyone that got it decided that they hated their job. Um, but me, on the other hand, um, I, in fact, loved it. I started off in the, um, what do we call it? We call it the dungeon. Basically, we just washing dishes. Dishes would come down. We'd wash them. Um, and I'd make games games out of it and I had fun um so honestly my washing dishes man um after I graduated from school there um the school ended up hiring me as a catering manager um this is when I worked for Sodexo um do you want me to keep going do you want me to give the whole hospitality story or we'll, we'll save that for your episode <laughs> when we really get into you but I, I I love that it's just important to kind of lay that groundwork for the dungeon but you loved it. You were like, it, yeah, yeah. I think it's, that's it's really, all about, really important. It's all about your mentality, man. You hear a lot of people, I'm sorry, a lot of successful people today um, from like Diddy or Jay-Z or um, uh, what's the other guy's name I'm thinking of? I can't think of his name right now, but um, it's, it's about doing the things no one else wants to do. And no matter where you start, you do it with professionalism. Um, you do it exceedingly well. And if you can do it there, you can do it. Um, in the big game. Yeah, I like that mentality, that mindset. So Danny very specifically talked about how you've been really important to her of just thinking about people, thinking about people first and the yes. way that you are always trying to yep. have empathy, understand the mm -hmm. situation, you know, where she struggles with that sometimes she specifically <laughs> mentioned. And yeah. so you're giving her some some uh, tips and some mentoring in that. Respect. Oh, that's that's good to know that she thinks that way. <laughs> I I loved I loved hearing that because self awareness is so important, and then surrounding yourself with people that it compliment really you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how, so tell us maybe specifically what you're doing these days uh, to kind of that fuels that, and then how the relationship with Danny was formed. I think for me, I, I'm I'm a huge listener. Um, I think I've always been that way. I just naturally want to listen to people and naturally want to hear them out before I make assumptions about them or how they're feeling or about a situation. Um, a large part of that came from training um, in my hospitality career. Um, and so, you know, Danny and I, we, we hooked up um, maybe a year and a half or two years ago, I'm not sure, we met on Instagram, um, and she was just 
she was a brewer. I think she was living in New York at the time um, with her brewery, Allen Island. And she had some challenges and she would reach out to me. I'm like, who is this person reaching out to me? Why are they asking me all these questions? I, do, I don't know you, uh, you know, and, and, but that's how the relationship was formed. And I was able to kind of give direction um, to, to assist the best way I could um, with what she was going through. And a lot of it, like, as you said, dealt with people. Why do you think uh, she was reaching out to you just specifically? What are you doing something on Instagram that so just people the, are looking at you in the well, at the time at the time I was um, the general manager for a brewery here in Richmond. Um, so with her working in the brewery scene um, and her also knowing about my hospitality career, I think there was there was some information that she was not keen to that I had that that she could uh, grow off girl makes sense well i'm big into isms right the the things that kind of the quips and the sayings if you're somebody who's people first and you did a lot of training clearly you have some ways of articulating how you connect with people maybe give us some of your philosophies on that some of the things specifically that you've been coaching danny on to kind of level her up in her uh, hospitality game yeah i I think one of the one of the biggest things that I learned in my career um, was a personality test. Um, I, I, I took several of them. One was uh, Myers-Briggs. Um, and using those tests to understand who I was and also understand the other types of personalities that were um, out there. And once I understood those and was able to dissect them, um, it's a win-win for you. you. You know how you should talk to, you know, this type of person, or you know how to um, make this person feel valued. Um, and, and learning those things really, I think, put my um, ability to talk with people and to hear them um, on a different level. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I am a purebred, 100% entrepreneur, which means I am the archetype of arsonist, mm -hmm. which means I light fires and I always need other people's help to either tend them and, and keep those fires going or put them out because yeah. shit, shit is getting lit on fire and <laughs> not in a good way. So, yeah. so yeah. I understand that and uh, self-awareness is so, so important within that. And then surrounding Absolutely. yourselves with the right, the right team. And yeah. a lot of times you think that who you are is the best, big air quotes, and so mm -hmm. you need more of that. Yeah. A lot of times you, two things cannot occupy the same space at the same time. And, so it's finding those compliments is important. Yeah. yeah, going back to like knowing yourself and knowing thyself, um, I think a lot of people know their strengths, right? And they, they play on those strengths, which is great. Please do it. Um, but it's very important and crucial to know your weakness and if you think that you're not weak then <laughs> that's your weakness right there um but everyone has a weakness and if you are able to understand what it is and how it affects relationships then i think it would do uh, great things for building relationships and building businesses um and knowing uh 
okay, you know, you see this other person that has this strength, whereas you have, have it as a weakness, that might be a great person for your team. Uh, I think Danny and I, we, as good of workers we are together, we clash all the time, and she annoys me. <laughs> that, but it's because we, we, we both think differently about things, but have the same goal in mind. Um, so it's just, it's all about understanding each other and how each, what, what, what's uh, worth letting go and what's not worth letting go um, in a business decision. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think it's interesting when you, when I hear you talking about strengths and weaknesses, I often talk about and think about how a lot of times our strength and our weakness is opposite sides of the same coin. A lot of times your strength can also be your weakness if you don't Absolutely. understand it or cultivate it correctly or nurture it or manage it mm -hmm. uh, correctly. And I think that's an interesting thing is, is you see it as a strength and it is a strength. However, mm -hmm. the point you made of thinking you don't have any weaknesses, your strength can be your weakness. It's very kryptonite-like in that the mythology that we create around it. And so when you're trying to break yeah. through that, when you're thinking, yeah. when, you're, when you're talking mm -hmm. with somebody like Danny or just generally, and you know your archetype or your character type, your personality type, and you're looking at somebody who's coming from a different direction, give us some practical advice. How are you navigating that conversation when you know that compromise is such a challenge? Back to one of my first points, it's all about listening. Um, you, you have to be a connoisseur of personalities and, and of people. You have to care about people. I'm sure there's levels to that um, where you have to make decisions that might hurt somebody. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to care about people. And if you don't care about them, you're not going to listen to them. You're not going to hear them out. You're not going to uh, consider the alternate viewpoint or the alternate uh, point of view. Um, I think that listening and slowing down and taking the time to learn um, someone that might be different than you or someone that might be the same and, and, and recognizing their, their strength and what they're good at and what they need help with and saying, okay, maybe I should react this way because I understand who they are. Um, and, it, and it would do a world of difference. And in all honesty, that's humbleness. Um, and I think humbleness is like one of the greatest powers that you could have because no one knows that you have it. <laughs> Most people that aren't humble, yet everyone knows that they have this, this power. Um, but if you're humble and you use, um, not in a way that you're using people, but just that you understand how people act and react, then you can use that to your advantage or to, or to the advantage of the goal that both of you are trying to reach. So I would say listening and, um, and just understanding people. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. You're deploying that humility, I, I, think, is, I think is great. A lot of times I think about how they say, you know, stay quiet and be the last one to speak. And that's mm -hmm. a challenge I have. <laughs> you should jump right in, uh, headlong, headfirst into anything. And so being the last to speak because you're spending a lot more time listening, I think is 
good good advice sure uh richmond virginia that's where you're at currently to yeah tell i'm us in a richmond bit about what, you, what you're doing today oh man i am uh 2020 is looking great um so currently i work at a brewery um in richmond um i'm a bartender as well as a what is ass, assistant packaging person i don't know what the title is <laughs> um but i assist in canning um, outside of that, I do work in the school system, um, part-time as a sub. And then I also focus on my two businesses that I have. Uh, one's called Uncap Everything. It's a, um, lifestyle brand that focuses on, um, turning non-craft beer lovers into craft beer enthusiasts, basically. Um, so I just, I basically journal my experiences, uh, through craft beer, I interview brewers, um and just educate people on the on the various styles that are out there in the market um so i do that work with i work with the richmond tourism board um i do tour, private tours with people that are visiting richmond um i do tastings anything that involves education on beer or breweries that's what uncap everything is um my other business that i have is called uh, the capsule collective so that is that was created last May in an effort to help energize and diversify tap rooms in the area. So we do that through a biweekly podcast where we invite um, different people uh, on the podcast. We talk about beer, but uh, mostly we just, we just talk about, you know, whatever it is that they're into. For instance, um, the one we have upcoming, uh, we spoke with a local hip hop artist um, that does battle rap and stuff like that. But he also is a huge craft beer drinker and, and knows a lot about it. Um, I think a lot of times today, the majority of what we see in media or the person that drinks beer isn't the battle rapper or the person that looks like me that, um, that drinks the craft. Um, so we do, we do the podcast. We do a quarterly craft beer magazine um, that we put out. Um, where we focus on craft beer, culture, arts, community, and music. Um, and we also do several events in the city. Um, one of our most popular ones, I think, is the, is the Capsule Summer Block Party, um, which will be coming up later this summer. You're a busy guy. Yeah, I probably forgot some stuff, but... I like it. The, yeah, the hustle is un relenting i i think it's great i'm i'm super bought into what you're doing i i'm uh i'm in it as well i'm a certified cicerone i have uh beer brands called good yeah. bugs that we're actually shifting to a new brand called fresh pitch we've done like 50 beers over the last three years and wow speaking speaking to gabf and big beers and stuff so I, i'm I'm so into it. I'm all about connecting people to new flavors and new experiences. So Absolutely. I, I am so I'm getting goosebumps just hearing you talk. Cause I'm like, I'm in it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And and I think the, Richmond's oh, an interesting place yes, because yes, I mean, you have like the veil and Hardywood, like there's some, some names that are creating some uh, credibility for Richmond. And then I know a lot of other smaller breweries. Now unpack a couple things that you said, what's the brewery that you are working with in Richmond? Uh, triple crossing triple crossing okay haven't heard of them i will be checking them oh out oh my goodness you haven't heard of them that wow they're the best brewery in the city 
All right. I'm, I love it. And I, I, lo- and, I love when I'm I, dropping the I, ball by that that I have said that prior to working there. I always want to make sure people know that I have said that before working at the brewery. <laughs> it is by far, hands down, the best brewery um, in the city. I think that's great. I love when I get exposed as not knowing something I should. I think it's great because <laughs> now it's time for me to get my shit together and get out to Richmond because uh, I get the opportunity to travel for beer. It's just like, it's super cool. It's such an interesting culture. And I am so into what I heard from Danny, what I'm hearing from you and the diversity, because yes, the, the, the nerdy white guy uh, archetype of the craft beer nerd has a lot of room for evolution. Let's put it like that. I think yeah. it's, it's really exciting that you're creating a framework and like making it exciting and enticing and cool, you know, yeah. that uh, yeah, is yeah. important. Our whole motto is where craft meets culture. Um, so there's a huge fo- focus on craft, but there's also a huge, not huge fo- focus on culture and what culture means for me and my team is um, like uh, going out to the battle raps that happen here in Richmond once a month, put on by I'm a local hip hop artist. Um, Culture means for me is going to art galleries and sipping a good craft beer while I'm doing it. I'm not going to have wine. <laughs> I think I think most times wine is synonymous with like these high class things, um, which is not a problem. That's fine. But I also think that you can have a, a great beer um, and be high class and have this mentality um, of being out and having a good time and not drinking just to, you know, get drunk, but actually enjoying the nuances of that, of that beverage. So it's a lot of things that play into like what I do. I'm, 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 I'm very much about um, breaking stereotypes, um, whether that's racially or culturally. Like, I think that kind of goes back to my personality of like, listen to people first before you judge or make statements about them. So a lot of the things that I do, I think are, um, it is a is a reflection of like how I treat people, so I'm trying to break molds of how people think about um, certain things, whether that's who drinks beer or what beer t- should taste like, and you know all these things. I used to not like beer. I had one beer a long time ago. I was like, this is disgusting. I would never have beer. Horrible. Then I had a beer that changed my life. It was at Yazoo. You mentioned them earlier. It was a uh, a smoke porter. I was like, this is beer. This is this is insane. This tastes nothing like beer. What? It, it's 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 complex. It's it's chocolatey. It's smoky. This is amazing, um, and it it changed my life. And now here I am, you know, brewed a beer with three notch. Uh, we did a we did did a beer called Soul Bliss, which is a blackberry molasses porter. I didn't even talk about that, but then you know it it's, it that moment, however many years ago, has changed my life um, and has really set me on this journey of like really being into the, into the beer industry. I'm very glad Danny connected us on this. Clearly, <laughs> uh, clearly you've already done well and you're continuing to do well. I think it's just cause you make it easy. Like just in talking a couple of minutes, like you're going to make it easy for people and exciting for people to jump into something new because it feels comfortable because you feel comfortable. <laughs> Eric Jackson, my friend, thank you very much for talking with us. Yes. And thank you for allowing me to be on this show. And I look forward to, to talking to you, to you again. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. 
Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.